today on the show, former Seahawks defensive back, coach, and longtime radio analyst Paul Moyer joins me to give his unique perspective on this young Seahawks secondary that he thinks is as talented as any we've seen here in Seattle. We also look back over Paul's career and reflect on what it took for him to make the roster as an undrafted free agent back in the days when the draft lasted 12 rounds. Paul and I cover a lot of ground in this conversation, so let's get to it. But first, hit that like button, subscribe to the channel so you never miss episodes like this. Seahawks Forever is up next. Welcome to the Seahawks Forever podcast. In-depth analysis on everything Seahawks. And now, here's your host, Dan Viennes. Welcome back to the show, everybody. I know, I know we're in the heart of it. We're in the dog days of the offseason. You're all scattering. You're all going on vacation. You're getting ready for the fourth and training camp still four full weeks away. So we're running out of things to talk about, right? But we're not running out of people to talk about. And as I have been promising, former Seahawks player, coach, analyst, broadcaster, Paul Moyer, joining me from his offices on First Hill in Seattle. Paul, thank you so much for doing this and joining me on the show today. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate you having me. And but there's always something to talk about with the with the Seahawks. So um, it is you know, it is what you, makes the NFL special. It is truly 365. Uh, I was talking to Corbin Smith today, who covers the team, and and um, uh, with the NHL draft happening today, the entry level draft, and and uh, baseball does it too, where their draft precedes free agency. And he was talking about that concept, and ultimately we decided that. It wouldn't work because it would take away that four or five months of draft speculation that kind of fuels all the offseason talk and makes it so much fun for fans and analysts and, and guys like yourself. So we need it. We crave it. And uh, that's why we're here doing it. Yeah. You, you mentioned um, camps about a month, actually less than a month away. Yeah. And that's right. About a month away. It's it's always been around my birthday. And it was uh you know, July 26th, my birthday and, and camp always started the day of or the day after. Mm -hmm. So it was one of those. I remember it was uh, going home. I always go home the last two weeks down to California where I grew up and always missed, you know, my birthday and said, OK, you know, but that was my time to get ready because I wasn't going to see my friends and family for about five weeks because that's what camp was like back in the old days. Yeah, I want to start in the old days. Let's go back to your first training camp. So you have your birthday. You you didn't know for sure that you were going to be leaving for five weeks that year. You were undrafted. And back then, I think people forget, the draft was 12 rounds at that mm -hmm. time. Yeah. What do you remember most about your approach heading into that training camp, knowing that you're about to go play for one of the most hard-nosed, old-school, throwback, kind of veteran-leaning head coach in Chuck Knox, you knew the odds were stacked against you. Talk a little bit about the mindset that you had going into that camp trying to make that roster. Well, um, I still remember it. It's actually 40 years uh, this year, which mm -hmm. is kind of weird because it's been my, I think it's my 40th year doing something with the Seahawks, either yeah. player coach broadcasting. Um, back then, we, we had mini camps, and they would bring in a lot of, lot of rookies. Um, I was obviously a little surprised I wasn't drafted. I mean, I was on the number one defense in the country at Arizona State. Um, I had a, a, a three-time All-American safety next to me, but I, I definitely outplayed him. I was the MVP of the East-West Shrine game. I, you know, I was I was a little shocked. But it, the way the world was back then, they didn't really have the combines like they do today. Yeah. And if you got pigeonholed from the year before, 
uh, with your 40 time, which I was hurt in my junior year, it was hard to get that off. So um, with all that being said, I knew Chuck Knox growing up in Orange County. I was a big LA Ram fan before he went off to Buffalo. Uh, and so when I was signed as a free agent and there was, you know, it's just like today, there, there's a lot of teams will go after the undrafted, particularly the pretty good players that were undrafted. You get a, you know, it's actually you're in a better position than being drafted late. Um, the one thing I knew was they, they didn't really have a lot of backups. They had a guy named Don Dufek, who I just mm -hmm. saw at Mike Tice's uh, charity event uh, this week, past weekend. Hadn't seen him in about 30 years. Uh, and then they had another guy named McMillan. I can't remember his first name, but, but I had actually watched them and I said, okay, and they had uh, they had said, look, you you have a, a legitimate chance to make this team. Mm -hmm. So that was part of why I signed. Um, my defensive coordinator, Arizona State, was the defensive line coach, so he he knew me as well. So there was there was a little bit of history on that. But once I got here, because of the mini camps, and then I stayed the whole summer, I, I was pretty confident I was going to make the team. I mean, I definitely thought I was the third best safety behind. John Harris and, and Kenny Easley, mm -hmm. uh, but you, you never know. Obviously you, you go into it. I had a, a, a pretty good camp. Um, I knew I was going to make the team though at that point. Yeah. So um, no surprises, but definitely like a lot of guys who are free agents and there's a long history of it here at, with the Seahawks, you know, you, you, you have a chip on your shoulder and I, I, I was one of them. Yeah. And uh, went on to, to be, I don't know, I guess we could say uh, the, the second best player from that draft class, right? Um, you look at that class as a whole, and uh, the Seahawks take Kurt Warner at number three. You yeah. end up playing 98 games in your career. Nobody else that was drafted that year played more than, I think Sam Merriman played 70, 71 games. Yeah. Um, it was basically you and Kurt were the stars of that draft class, or rookie class, as you will. You mentioned it. The Seahawks have had tremendous success every single year. Uh, one, if not multiple, undrafted free agents make the roster. Your experience being around the organization, why have they been so, so successful at cultivating that resource? Well, that's a good question. Because I'm not sure I came from – well, I, when I was there, it definitely was a culture. And I think a lot of it had to do with Rusty Tillman. Uh, Rusty mm -hmm. Tillman was our you know, great yeah. special team coach, you know. You know rest in peace, my, my friend there. He, he passed away about a year ago uh, on us. Um, so there was definitely a focal point for that. And, you know, you can only back then the special teams were a huge part of it. Uh, yeah. you know, it's much more than it is today. I mean, they're really taking special teams out. Yeah. So, and I think there was a, because they came from a, an expansion draft where, you know, they had to go get a bunch of players and you brought in a hundred players back then, you know, 120 guys, cause you had three a days at, uh, over in Cheney. And you just got an opportunity, and it just goes to show you that there's no there's no complete science to drafting players. There's a lot of good, really good football players who don't get drafted and end up making the NFL. And I just think the Seahawks uh, they started that, and then after that, I think it's just you know sometimes it's pure luck. Uh, sometimes it's your scouting scouting team. Um, one of the few pictures I have in my office, you mentioned, and there's Kurt Warner right there. Yeah. I don't know if that was our rookie year or second year, but yeah, Kurt was uh, Kurt and I became roommates uh, there, and you know we gave up a lot to get him, you know, yeah. to move to that that spot. Second, so third, and fourth, yeah, spot. yeah, and uh, yeah, and Kurt and I have been really best friends ever since. So that was 
you know, you're right. There wasn't a lot of us who made the team. You know, I want to ask you about that. There's so it's such a focal point of debate, especially in the analytical community these days. Using resources on running backs, nobody mm-hmm. wants to pay him anymore. You got guys like Dalvin Cook being cut in the prime of their careers. Uh, anyone who drafts a running back high gets reamed in the in the in the media, especially among the analytical community. Nobody more so than the Seahawks the last two years for investing second round picks back to back years. I'd like to know your thoughts on on kind of the current valuation of the running back position when it comes to that, because you saw firsthand a team give up tremendous draft resources to move up to take a running back at three, but you also saw that player with a tremendous individual performances rookie year transform that offense. You saw that firsthand. So how does that affect your view of kind of what's happening in that area? Well, you know, there's, there's a lot of those analysts on the draft that, you know, I would love to have conversations with. <laughs> they, it, each team, it's about what they value. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I get if you take it as a whole. All right, we're just going to put every team in a basket and we're going to take the analytics of the value of a running back. I, I get it. But go show me a, a really good football team that doesn't have a great running back. Yeah. I mean, there are not very many of them. Um, and then, you know, I, I even look at Tennessee. I mean, what does Henry mean to them? Yeah. Everything. Yeah. What, what does running backs mean to the Seahawks? Everything, because it's built around their offense. I get Kansas City. But even Kansas City has a good running back. There's just not a running back. I mean, he's a wide receiver out of the backfield. And they use them differently. Um, so and let, you can make a lot of money as a running back, but you better be able to catch, you know, 50, 60 footballs uh, as well as a running game. And I think the, the biggest thing is just the injury part of it. You yeah. cannot yeah. invest that much into it. You know, you know, they're going to carry it 20 to 30 times a game, which is rare nowadays. You know, they try to limit that with now 17 games. The injury factor for those guys who are missing game, missing games is huge, yeah. and so and I do think you can go find a lot of good running backs in the second to you know seventh round. You, you can find some. I mean, I we got two of them this year. I think are going to compete and compete hard for playing time, because uh, I certainly don't want you know K nine having to take twenty five snaps you know, yeah. running the football. He's just not big enough. So I think the value of running backs huge. Dave Wine, you hear him, he thinks that. The Seahawks obviously do. But again, if we put him in a basket, I get it, you know, and that the pundits are going to dog that. But it's obviously worked out. I think they're having a harder time uh, dogging the Seahawks draft over the last two years. It, maybe they're just looking for some sort of Achilles heel. It does seem like the Seahawks take more heat in that area and other organizations get a pass. Like I feel like the Detroit lions are getting a pass for taking Gibbs at 12. And I don't know, it just seems to be a Seahawk thing. Um, but certainly they've been hit by the injury bug as much as anyone. They relied, they had, they had so much on Chris Carson's shoulders or shot Penny's shoulders. We saw what happened there. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm with you. Love this running back room and don't mind. And, but I, I'm a, I'm a best player available guy. Just take good players and figure it out later. And, and it seems like yeah. at least these last two drafts, that's kind of been the focus for them. Yeah, no question. Before we talk a little bit more about this current roster, I want to go back uh, a little bit, just one last time to your playing career. Mm-hmm. 1988 was a fantastic year. It was your best year. You started all 16 games, six interceptions, two fumble recoveries. The team went 9-7, and seven, won the AFC West. Some of the younger fan bases, uh, fans right now might be you know, Googling right now to make sure I didn't just make a mistake in saying that. 
lose to the Bengals in the first round of the playoffs that year. What's your what's your what memory stands out the most to you about that particular season? Well, that was the first year without Kenny Easley, mm-hmm. and you know, he was definitely the leader, at least physical leader uh, of our team for so many years. And you know, they I replaced him, so I remember that obviously. And Kenny and I were really good friends, so that was a a tough one. And we 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 talked about it before it actually happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was an up and down year as well. Uh, we just we started off hot. I think we won our first two games against Denver, and I don't remember who the other the, the next game. We were I think we were two and zero, and then we we uh, I think it was Kansas City. And then we come up against the 49ers, and you know they've got you know their world class team who won the Super Bowl that year, and we were like number two in defense going into that game. I think we came out we were like 30th. It was one of the biggest games. So it was just an up and down year where we played really well at times, and then we would lay an egg. Uh, it was just a really inconsistent year, but we were, we had playmakers and, and made a lot of plays when need be. Uh, and then we probably should have beat Cincinnati. Remember, we should have beat Cincinnati on the road. They were the number yeah. one team, I think, yeah. in the AFC that year. We fumbled twice inside their 10 yard line going into score twice. Uh, and that, you know, we ended up losing what by, by eight points, I think, uh, maybe whatever the score was. Yeah. So I, I just remember that. I, I, for me personally, it was, you know, it was fun. I always wanted to start, but, you know, when you sit behind Kenny Easley, you know, you're definitely going <laughs> to bide your time. But I played a lot. I think I started over 30 games uh, in my career just because Kenny had been hurt. Um, I know that I was pretty productive when I did get an opportunity, at least, you know, interceptions and stuff. Yeah. So it was fun. I, we had a good team. We were getting a little old in the tooth there. You know, some of our best players, you know, we had Steve Largent and Jacob Green and we had lost Kenny Easley. And uh, so some of our stars were, or were just starting to get past their prime. Uh, but it, it was fun. It was the first AFC uh, West Championship for in Seahawks history or, or a banner, I guess. Yeah, uh, it was pretty memorable for us. Are you excited about the throwback unis from that era coming back? I can't. I, first of all, I, I love those uniforms, and yeah. and to retrofit, uh, maybe retrofit's not the right. To to modernize them, uh, what they've mocked up, if if that's what is actually going to come out, uh, I think the game's going to be against Cleveland. Yeah, I I think they're the best looking uniforms in the league. Uh, I I I kind of like the ones now. I have to say that because I work for the Seahawks. And, sure. Uh, um, I do like them, but that uniform that they're going to bring in November is is special. And I've had so many people say the same thing. If that was the uniform, they'd be buying jerseys all day long. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. At the time, I don't think I appreciated them. But, you know, it was a different time back then. Shoulder pads were bigger. Guys wore neck rolls. The sleeves were loose, right? But like you said, the new tight-fitting you know, nobody wears pads anymore. Uh, I've seen some of those like Photoshop things too, and and uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be pretty amazing. They're gonna sell a lot of merchandise. I'll tell you that. Uh, but when people buy number twenty one jerseys, it's gonna have the name Witherspoon on the back of them for the most part. I yeah. am I am hoping that they'll have a customizable option uh, <laughs> for the throwback jerseys. Yes, I think that would be uh, fun. <laughs> we'll we'll make that happen. We'll mix a few Moyers in with the Witherspoons. Um, I want to talk about those young guys, uh, it, because this collection of talent in the secondary right now, um, you know, people like to toss around the Legion of Boom thing. I think it got kind of to an annoying level the last four or five years because especially the national guys, they just have nothing else to reference when, when talking about the Seahawks, 
But as far as pure talent goes, this collection of guys, how excited are you to see them come together on the field? Yeah, it's going to be fun. And I, I think you, you hit the right word. It's talent. Um, I'd argue my group was the best group of safeties in Seahawks history. And you got Kenny Easley, you had Dave Brown. Dave Brown has 63 interceptions. Yeah. 63. You could throw Earl Thomas and Sherman together and they don't touch that. Yeah. Though. At least I don't think. Maybe they're close. Um, you know, Kenny Easley, who was the most dominant safety uh, at that time, and you can put him and Ronnie Lott in there, but they were different type of players. Um, and if Kenny had played, you know, a full career, you know, more than the seven seasons that he did, yeah. he would have been even more of a, a folklore on that. Um, so I would argue in that just because we had so many playmakers, uh, John Harris, John Harris, smartest football player I've ever been around. He has over 30 interceptions, mm -hmm. Keith Simpson, you know, and even a little, you know, scrub like me, you know, I had double digit, uh, interceptions. I don't know if I have more than Cam Chancellor, but I think I'm close. Um, my point is the Legion of Boom won a Super Bowl. Yeah. Really good players. Earl, you know, again, and Sherm, what he did and Cam Chancellor, this group has a chance to be the most athletic group because when you look at Woolen, um, a lot of people want to compare him to Sherman. He is not as good as Sherman yet. Um, he had a good year. He had those interceptions and it was a complete surprise, but he has a long way to go to be truly an elite corner. And he's got to work still on his footwork, his jams. He's still got some pattern recognition things, hmm. but boy, that speed, that closing speed, that hmm. length he has, makes him very unique and then throwing witherspoon I, we got to see how that develops but i sure like him on tape um and we can play him a, a lot of different places we're not just playing on the outside I, yeah. I expect him actually to push a little bit in that nickel spot they they kind of did that a little bit in the otas by accident um and i think they'd like to have him outside but in the running game last year where everybody said oh we got to beef up the defensive line for the running game which i agree but we got hurt more on the perimeter than we did up the middle and a lot of people don't realize that and it came a lot with san francisco with fly sweeps and the way they bring in three tight ends and they were forcing our corners particularly woolen to have to play the run and he didn't play it that great you know again he's got to make some improvement there you throw in witherspoon now it's not just in the passing game i think he helps our running game as well and then throw in love love's going to be a guy that's going to compete in a lot of areas we can get jamal adams healthy uh, Diggs needs to play a little better. Um, I thought he took a little step back last year, but as a group, they got potential. Now they got to go out and prove it, but I, I am excited. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Well, I, looking back over your coaching career, it struck me that, and I'd forgotten, you know, time goes by, the, the continuity that you had as a DB coach in Seattle. You basically had the same group almost all four years. You certainly at corner with uh, Patrick Hunter and Dwayne Harper, basically four years in a row. So as a coach that affords you a lot of comfort knowing that, that you know, those guys, they know each other. How long does it take a young group like this to gel? Uh, 
prepare us for the fact that we might see some early season growing pains? Well, I think you saw it last year with, with wool and you saw it a little bit with Kobe Bryant, you know, he got better as the yeah. year went. Um, you go back you know, two years ago when Trey Brown, who I actually think was going to be a really good corner before his yeah. uh, knee injury. And I'm still optimistic. He's going to push. Uh, I'm not sure what happened last year, why he didn't push as hard towards the end of the year. Uh, I, I think it depends, Dan, because when I was playing and we ran what I thought was one of the most sophisticated defenses in the passing game in the NFL, because we did a lot of combination three on two guy cuts in, you jump them. The other guys over the top, uh, you know, and so we, that's why we set an NFL record for most turnovers in 1984. We have really smart guys who were talented, but it was a really, complicated defense that took a couple of years for us to get it mastered. And if you go back to 83, Chuck Knox's first year with our defense, it took us to the end of the year before we really got it figured out, started becoming a good defense. 1984 we become a dominant defense. So um, the reason why I say it depends is you just don't have that much time to run the type of defenses we ran back then. Yeah. You don't have enough time on the field with these guys, not enough practices. I mean, it, we literally had three practices during camp. You know, they have one for less than two hours. So you got to do a lot of film study. If they keep it simple and let them just play, I think they'll be fine because you'll see their athletic ability. But it is a learning curve, and they are going to have to communicate. And that was been the issue the last two years, is just the, the communication issues, the breakdowns, giving up big plays, big runs. And I look at big plays as that is a secondary responsibility in the running game and in the passing game. No. So not to tamp down the expectations too much, because I think we're going to be very good, but you're right. It's, it takes time to really try, trust. That's the word. Trust each other that you're going to do your job. Now I want to ask you about through the eyes of a, def- a guy who played defensive back coaches, defensive back sees the game that way. When you go to OTAs and mini camp and, and you see this group of receivers that the Seahawks has now, mm. just give me your thoughts on on those three guys and, and JSN, what you've seen out of him and adding him to the mix and what that affords Geno Smith when he gets out there and he's in third and long and he needs an outlet. It it just it, it's it's hard to not get excited about that group. Yeah, I think um I was reading uh, about our third down conversions. There's a couple articles today uh, in, on the, the local uh, channel. They actually uh, 710 Seattle wrote one. And one of them was, we haven't been top 10 offensively in third down since 2015. And I said the biggest issue with the Seahawks on third downs is when we lost Doug Baldwin. Doug was almost yeah. impossible to stop off the line. He's the best release guy I've seen. I mean, one of the best I've ever seen um, made people look silly and third down and seven, third down and eight. That really is a one-on-one situation. And it's the quickest throw for the quarterback. We haven't had that. And again, I think Jackson comes in and solidifies that immediately. Though I, I know D Eskridge is getting a lot of love right now. Mm-hmm. They, they feel like he's kind of like Kelnick in baseball, that there's something different about this okay. off season. He's going to compete. So I'm excited because we haven't had a slot, good slot receiver since Baldwin's been gone. Yeah. So now let's throw those three together. I've never been around a team that's had three wide receivers like them. Mm. I've always seen one, maybe two, been an athlete. 
Um, but you have, you know, obviously DK that's special. Tyler, who's probably the best route runner, you know, in the last 15 years for the, well, got to throw Doug Baldwin in there too. Yeah. We had some good ones, Steve Larson, but Tyler's special. Um, and now, you know, again, we're throwing a rookie that is, seems farther ahead, but it's hard to see in the OTAs what you're actually going to get. But I'm really excited. It's just a weapon that I think frees up DK and Tyler more. Uh, it's going to give them more opportunities for big plays. You've been around Pete Carroll now for a number of years, and and I'm fascinated by the contrast of his style and approach and the guys that you played and coached for. We talked about Chuck Knox. Tom Floor is also a very no-nonsense guy, right? When Pete first came into the league, he had a lot of detractors. I'll never forget the piece that Jeffrey Chidea wrote for ESPN when he was hired. The day after he was hired, said it'll never work. That rah-rah college mentality will never work. He'll be out of the league before his contract's over. What is it that you see from Pete on a, on a day-in, day-out basis being around him that, that makes his approach work? Well, I think um, you're right. I mean, when they hired Pete, I was a doubter at first, mm. too. Because they fired, you know, Jim Moore. Jim was a friend. Yeah. And, you know, I, I didn't like the way it went down, even though best decision the Seahawks probably have ever made. Um, I, I think, you know, Pete, Pete's big into psychology. Um, you know, when I was with Chuck, I mean, Chuck was, a, he was like the Mona Lisa. And he wore his hat down here. Mm -hmm. And he would stand off. And every player on the team thought he was looking at them. <laughs> And it didn't matter where he was. I mean, he always thought his eyes were on you. And I talk about this with other players. And he commanded respect. When you walk, he walked in the room, the, the room went quiet. Um, he, he was kind of like, I'm not kind of the Herb Brooks thing. I, I'll be your coach, but I'm not your friend. And, you know, there's other guys for that, that he had to do that. Pete is about people. I mean, X's and O's are important. And he does have a philosophy, and he's a fantastic coach. And he doesn't probably get enough credit for that. You know, people think, oh, he's raw, raw. He's just an emotional guy. He's yeah. more of a psychologist. Well, no, that's not it at all. It's the time he puts into it. It's a consistency. And I think what Pete does probably better than any coach I've been around is he just finds a way to get the best out of people. Hmm. And sometimes it is that pat on the back. And I think most people respond better when they're being praised and you live in this box and we're going to praise you for these great plays and we'll correct you on the bad ones. The old school way was we're going to punish you for those bad plays and our expectations are the good plays. So when you went into a film room, ours wasn't tell the truth Monday. It was, it was brutal, especially after a loss. No one wanted to go into film room on Monday. Yeah. Whereas here, these guys are encouraged to make plays and they're going to bring out that. So it's just a, it's a different vibe. And I think Pete's the best. The other thing is you can't fake it. I mean, Pete has that energy. That's real. I mean, yeah. it never wavers. And so there's so much to Pete that I could talk hours about on him. I think his X's and O's are vastly underrated. He's a mm -hmm. very good coach. He hires good coaches. The expectations are there. There's accountability. People say there's no accountability. No, there's accountability in that group. It's about competing. Um, but yeah, I think the psychology of it and the, just look at the players, the players may go out hurt because they're used to being this great organization and loved. And it hurts to be, we don't need, no longer need you. It's not personal. 
but they take it personal because most players are still young, right? They're sure. in their late 20s, or early 30s. I mean, my God, I mean, we're just learning to become men at that point. Yeah. Then they realize it and then they come back and they all talk well about Pete. So yeah, Pete's a special guy. It's an interesting perspective. I've always kind of viewed him as a, as a parental figure because we all think, you know, when we're growing up, we all think that our parents are idiots and we they don't know and they're too hard on us or whatever. And then we grow up one day and we wake up and we realize, oh, I, I am who I am because of them. And you make a great point, Michael Bennett, Luke Wilson talking on KJ Wright's podcast last week had some amazing things to say about how he wasn't too happy about how some things went down, but now he sees how great that environment was. You mentioned expectations. Let's finish on that note. This is such a young roster, talented roster. It's a fun roster. Can't wait to see it on the field. Are we a year away from from a roster that can really truly contend? The expectations are rising by the day, it seems like. Um, for this team, but but realistically, what can we expect out of this young roster? Well, I think realistically, we can be a better team next year. Um, I, you know, look, I, we should beat the Rams and the Cardinals both games. I mean, to me, there's four wins right then. You, you played close to 500. I know there's an odd, odd number of games now, but you play close to 500 during the playoffs. Yeah. And a lot depends on does Geno do what he does what he did last year. Mm-hmm. I, I think he's going to be better. Um, I think our offensive line is going to be better. I don't know a position we're not going to be better. And the reason why I say that is, to me, DK is still on the upswing. Our running backs on the upswing. Our tight ends are all young. Our whole offensive line is young and going to get better. Go, let's look at the defense. Same thing across the board. Um, you know, I don't think Bobby Wagner is necessarily going to be better, but, you know, I think he brings yeah. in some stability. Let's look at corners. So I look at it every position, and I think Geno Smith is first time really starting for a full season in 10 years. He's absolutely going to be better because he's a really young 32, I don't know, maybe he's 33 now, year old. So I think the expectations are there, but the teams ahead of us are still really good. I mean, San Francisco, their their defensive line is they're a juggernaut. I mean, their the, their weapons they have offensively it's it's a complicated offense mm-hmm. to to defend. You got to have really smart players, not just smart, but you got to have athletes to match up with it. Do we do we make that jump? So I think that, I think at the end of the year, the last four, I was look I'm looking by quarter by quarter. First quarter, we should be pretty good. I just need to see us to get a little bit better each quarter. And then that last, you know, three, four games, you know, are we playing in a position to actually make a run at this thing? But I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we pushed San Francisco hard this year. And a lot's going to do with, with injuries. But you got to love this young team and the, and the upside, and it's getting better. Well, you'll be able to hear Paul's continued analysis. He makes regular appearances on Seattle Sports 710. You can hear him there. And then, of course, the pre- and the post-game show uh, on the radio broadcast as well. Paul, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we can do this again soon. Anytime, Dan. Appreciate you. Have a great fourth, by the way. Follow me on uh, Twitter at Seahawks Forever. And subscribe to the YouTube channel so you always get notification of new episodes. Until next time, this is Seahawks Forever. Forever and always, go Hawks.